we will be continuing in our walk through the book of Daniel this morning. Uh, please keep your Bibles where they are. Uh, Gina read our text, Daniel 3, 8 through 12. That's where we'll be. Last Sunday, we looked at how Nebuchadnezzar built a golden statue and demanded that his government officials come to the plain of Dura and bow down and worship it. Uh, when the leaders arrived from all over his kingdom, they were told to start bowing and worshiping when the orchestra began to play. And uh, they were also warned that anyone who failed to comply to bow and worship would be immediately executed by being thrown into a fiery furnace. This morning, we're going to look at what took place next. Uh, but before uh, proceeding and getting into it, before getting to work, I think it's uh, right for us to pray for our time in God's Word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we acknowledge your presence. We humbly ask for your guidance this morning. Teach us your Word. Open our hearts and minds. Expose our fears and strengthen and strengthen our faith. Help us to trust you. Help us to live in the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Be blessed and glorified during this time. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So we'll pick it up at verse 8. Daniel chapter 3, verse 8. Please look at it with me. It says, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. During the dedication service of this you know, giant statue, there were some men present who went to, to the king, to Nebuchadnezzar, and, and filed a complaint. You know, this thing's kind of happening, and the dedication service is going, and people are bowing and worshiping, and you have this one small group of men who go over to the king and, and point something out, and they complain about something that's going on or not going on. Daniel referred to them as certain Chaldeans. Certain Chaldeans. Now, these men were likely... Religious leaders, maybe the priests of one of the many idol gods, if you will, uh, likely the idol god Bel Merodach. Uh, Bel Merodach was the Babylonian idol that represented the planet Mars. Remember that Babylonian religion um, is uh, it's an, it's a uh, religion that's based on astral deities or astrology. And so apparently these certain Chaldeans were priests of this particular idol god. The prophet Jeremiah actually referenced this idol god while he was prophesying about Babylon's downfall, which would come not too long after this point. Jeremiah 50, verse 2, he says, Declare among the nations and proclaim... Set a banner and proclaim, conceal it not, and say, Babylon is taken, Bel is put to shame, Merodach is dismayed. Her images, speaking of Babylon, her images are put to shame, her idols are dismayed. So there's a direct reference to this false god, this idol god, the alleged idol god of Mars, and I think that these men were priests, religious leaders, serving this fictitious God. What did they do? It says they maliciously accused the Jews. Maliciously means to hate without cause. That would be the Aramaic to Hebrew translation. It means to hate without cause. It has to do with, with hating a person or a group of people for no reason whatsoever. You just hate them because you hate them. It's not as if they've done anything wrong to you or anything like that. This would be maybe in, in, in our idea, it would be a people group or someone in particular that we've never even met, and yet we have this fervent hatred of them. Uh, they've never done anything to us. And so that's what's happening here. 
They maliciously accused. They hated without any cause this other group of Jewish people. And I would say that, that racism would be classified or categorized under this kind of maliciousness, this hatred without a cause, right? Racism, by definition, is, is nothing really more than people hating other people simply because they are from a different race. Uh, maybe they are of a different color or ethnic background. Now, racism may have been a factor here, uh, but I think that it was more than that. And if you study the Middle East and if you study history, you will see that, and I, I would, maybe I'll go out on a limb by saying this, but I don't think that there's ever been a people group in that region more despised and had more racism launched at them than the Jews. Even today, there's, there's so much anti-Semitism, it's not even funny, it's crazy. So, but I'm not convinced that this is just the Chaldeans who were not Jewish, hating on the Jews because they were of a different ethnic group. I'm not convinced that it just has to do with race. I believe that the Chaldeans hated the Jews because they were jealous of their high positions. There was an envy there, if you will. Nebuchadnezzar had promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and this obviously did not go down well with the certain Chaldeans. They may have felt that they deserved these promotions and positions uh, over time. And you have to realize that this is, you know, from chapter 2 to chapter 3, you have two decades. So these guys were exalted to these high positions. And, you know, 20 years later, these guys boil over in their jealousy and envy. Um, And the way that jealousy works, or envy, if you will, they're kind of synonymous Over time, if it's not checked, it will turn to bitterness. You know, a person is jealous over what somebody else has, they're envious of what they have, or a promotion or anything like that. And over time, that will kind of morph into a bitterness against that person or against their promoter. And then over a little bit more time, that bitterness can morph and become hatred a hatred of that person, a hatred of their position, a hatred of the promoter, the one that put them in that place. And then obviously that hatred can boil and bubble out, kind of ooze out in maliciousness. That would be a hate-based, without-a-cause sort of attack. And so there's a whole progression there. You have jealousy, and then you have bitterness, and then you have kind of hatred, and then it produces malicious activity. Spite! I'm going after this person now. That kind of mentality, that kind of progression, if you will. And and this is why jealousy can be so lethal. Um, It has the potential and the ability to morph and become bitterness and hatred and malicious action. Listen to what James 3, 14 through 16 says about this. It kind of highlights or... Uh, maybe illustrates the progression. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not, speaking of this bitter jealousy, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. So jealousy is not godly. It doesn't come down from heaven to us. He says, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And then he says this, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. See the progression? This passage tells us that jealousy is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, and when it is present, disorder and every vile practice will also be present. The vile, malicious, ugly practice that we see here in our text is murder. Or attempted murder, if you read down a little bit further. It's a hatred that produces an attitude of violence and destruction against these Jews. In Galatians 5, 19 through 21, the Word of God says, Jealousy and envy are works of the flesh. So when you have jealousy, again, it's not something of the spirit. It is something of the flesh. Something has happened here in the old man, if you will, the old self. He says, 
Over there in Galatians, Paul says in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, now the works of the flesh are evident. Now he goes on to describe what the works of the flesh are. Is this a comprehensive list? No, but it's a list. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Now, in my personal opinion, jealousy leads to fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, does it not? Because I'm not getting what I want, I'm starting a war. And he goes on to say in verse 21 of Galatians 5, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are all things that have to do with the flesh. And he says, I warn you. So, okay, if you have these things, I'm warning you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, who are jealous and have these fits of anger and rivalries and sexual immorality, all the things that he's listed, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's, about, that's just a bold-faced warning. In Proverbs 14, verse 30, the Word of God tells us that envy is like a degenerating bone disease. It just chews us up in our bones. It's like a cancer of the bones. It says, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And I think we're seeing a perfect example of that in this text. You have these guys that were jealous and envious over these foreign guys, these Jews getting these positions, and it just kind of starts as jealousy and it morphs and it's bitterness and anger and malicious activity, even as we will see, as I said, calling for their destruction and in the worst possible way being burned alive. Now the antidotes to envy and jealousy And maybe even the antithesis to these things would be humility and contentment. Those are the opposites, and those are the antidotes to those things. And we talk about humility all the time here. It's one of the great things that we all as believers wrestle with, no doubt. But humility has to do with having a low view of yourself and considering others better than you. Humble people do not get envious Jealous. They do not get blown out when others get promoted. They do not say to themselves, I should have got that promotion. I deserved it more. Why did the boss give it to that loser? Humble people don't say those kinds of things. Jealous and envious people do. Prideful people do. Humble people say, and I use the name Ralph now because I don't know one person named Ralph. Because I've, I've been using names for 10 or 15 years, and somebody comes up to me like, my name is Susie. And then they think I'm talking about them specifically, and I always look at them and say, was I? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I guess. Uh, humble people say things like this. Ralph was, <laughs> it's a weird name, Ralph's transmission, that's all that comes to mind. Ralph was obviously more qualified than me, and that is why he got the promotion. Good for him. See, that's the response when there's promotions and things happening. That's the response from the humble person. Well, good for him. I'm glad that he got promoted. I'm glad that she got promoted. Not, I hope they die. That's the certain Chaldeans. I hope they die. Contentment, the other antidote, right? The first one's humility. The second one would be contentment. It has to do with being satisfied with where God has us. It has to do with being satisfied with what God has given us. It has to do with being grateful for his blessings. Content people do not get envious and blown out when others get promoted. They say, I'm happy with where God has me. I'm happy with what he has given me. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with my position. I, I, in fact, I don't think I'm really worthy of the position I'm in. And it's kind of a miracle that I'm standing here doing this. That's how I feel every Sunday. So a content person is, actually seeks to be satisfied and blessed by where God has them and by what God is doing for them. They're not sitting there longing for more and scratching for more and fighting for more and being critical of others who have more. 
And I tell you, discontent is really, it's like the antithesis to faith. You know, when you're in discontent, you're not trusting the Lord. Now, Christians are to be marked by both humility and contentment. It's not easy, but we're to be marked by humility and contentment. Certainly others are greater than us, and we're fine with that. We have Jesus. <laughs> and we need, apparently, because of our flesh, we need much more than Jesus, right? It's just not working for me. I need Jesus plus a cheeseburger, you know? I don't know. Maybe that's a terrible illustration, but should be that we're just so satisfied in Jesus that we are humble and we are content. We're not concerned about what others are getting or doing so much. And in fact, we respond by wanting to be a blessing to them and maybe even thanking the Lord for their promotions and the things that God is doing for them. We are not to be marked by envy, jealousy, malice, or any other vile practice. We are to be holy as God is holy, we are to be set apart and different from those around us, okay? So we are to be different than those around us that are scratching and fighting and criticizing, you know, and jealous over everything. Man, I've worked with people that just, you know, every little thing I do, they were there to give their input, you know, and just, it's like, and it wasn't like, hey, good for you. It was, you know, oh, you're, you know, you're a pastor, you're just all about money, you know, and I'm like, you know, thank you, yeah, 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 I went into pastoral ministry because I'm all about the money, that's like becoming a police officer for the money, you know, it's like, really, no, we don't do it for that, but, you know, some people just have something negative to say to everything, and it's really because they're envious, and they're jealous, and they're not content, and they have no concept of these things. So these certain Chaldeans, these priests of Bel-Merodach, were filled with envy and jealousy, and they came forward, and what did they do? They maliciously accused the Jews. Now let's take a look at what they said to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verses 9 through 11. 9-11. Isn't it interesting that we're going to be talking about fear today? See how God threads things together? It wasn't my plan. 9 through 11 they declared here, they've come to the king, and here's what they say. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, Oh, king, live forever! Right? Exclamation point. Boy, they were passionate about the king's long life. You, O oh, king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, apparently, apparently there were some Scotsmen there, and every kind of music. Now, that's interesting to me. Every kind of music. So, man, I mean, they were throwing down. They were playing like every kind of genre on earth. Playing a little country. They slipped into some house music. No, that's not what they were doing. Every kind of music shall fall down, right? This is what they're saying to the king. Shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. So obviously they began by saying, O king, live forever. And we saw this back, this phrase back in chapter 2, verse 4. It was the ancients' way of declaring, long live the king. You've heard that. After wishing Nebuchadnezzar a long and prosperous life, they recited his decree back to him verbatim, like word for word, man. I don't think they missed anything. It was like right on the money. Why did they do this? Why did they... Go to the king and, and, and as if they read back his decree to him. Why did they do that? Did the king suffer from forgetfulness or memory loss? There's something that happens to you when you hit about 40. You tend to forget about things that, you know, I forget about things. that I'm, talk, I'm in a conversation with somebody and all of a sudden, what was I saying? You do that yet? Does anyone do that? Bruce, do you have that problem? I think you do have that problem because you called one of my kids Nathan for like two years, <laughs> right? Ryan is forever Nathan to Bruce. I, we just thought about changing his name to make it easy for Bruce. Did this king suffer from forgetfulness? Did he suffer from memory loss? Like, uh, is that really what I said? You know? No. The king's memory was fine. He didn't suffer from memory loss. Here's the deal, man. Here's the trick. Here's the key. 
The Chaldeans understood that royal decrees were, in most cases, 99% of the time, they were irrevocable. Okay? Look at Esther 8.8, and you will see that king make a decree. And he's like, I'm sorry, Esther, I can't go back on what I did. I stamped it with my signet ring. It has to happen. So they understood that the king's decree was very likely irrevocable, like there was no going back. By reciting Nebuchadnezzar's decree verbatim, they were, in a sense, holding him to his word and ensuring that he would follow through with the death order. It's like they said, okay, so here's what you said, and we understand the gravity and the weight of what you've said. We just want to remind you of this, thinking that maybe he could change his mind in this scenario. You see, the Chaldeans, and this is part of their maliciousness, they understood that the accused, right, that the accused were highly favored by the king, and that he could, if he chose to, amend his decree. They understood that. This is why they reiterated the king's decree before naming the accused. You see that there? They didn't start off by saying, by the way, you've got some guys that we know you really like that did this, and by the way, here's your decree. No, they, they flipped it. They waited to recite the names because they wanted to make sure the king was locked into his contract. Think of it like that. They put the king in a position where he would literally, and I'm not trying to tell you that, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was some sort of benevolent king that went back on his word. He was a brutal guy, so I'm not sure he would have went back anyways. But they did this, uh, put the king in this sort of no other way position uh, so that he would, without a doubt, follow through. That there would be no chance of him amending his decree and granting them clemency. Their strategy, literally, by reciting back verbatim his command, his decree, their strategy literally put his authority and reputation on the line. This guy would have been the la- this king would have been the laughing stock of his kingdom. You know, if you're a king, and it's likely that none of us ever will be, and you're in the habit of decreeing these very, very important things that are significant and that have so much weight behind them, your reputation is on the line. If you're in the habit of making these threatening, potentially dangerous and deadly decrees, and then all of a sudden you change your mind, would you not at some point as a king have bedlam? You know, would you not have, would your kingdom not be marked by disorder? Because who would respect you? Who, who would say, well, yeah, I know what I would say if I was one of his kingdom members, if you want to call me that, if I was a Babylonian. This guy's a joke, man. He never follows through with what he's going to do. I'm not going to the dedication thing because I know he won't do it. So, so much was riding on this. He had to. His authority, his reputation were on the line. If you slide down to verse 14, you will notice that Nebuchadnezzar seems to be a bit disheartened and surprised when he finds out who the accused were. He's like, really? You guys are the ones who are doing this? Oh, man. He kind of has that flavor to his words. At first, he's really ticked. And then when he finds out who they are, he's like, oh, really? You guys are the ones doing this? And in verse 15, you'll see that he even gave them a second chance to do it, doesn't he? Okay, so maybe you guys didn't understand the decree. So, uh, orchestra, get ready to play that last tune. So when the music fires up, you guys go ahead and follow through with it, and everything will be cool. If not, then I'm going to have to kill you. He gives them another shot at it. I'm thinking if it hadn't been these particular guys, he wouldn't have given the others a shot at it. Now, let's look at what the Chaldeans said next. Look at 12. So they've already read back verbatim the decree, and here's where they name the alleged culprits. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and he doesn't hesitate to call them by name, right? 
Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those were their Chaldean names. These men, by the way, king, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow, man. Here the Chaldeans named the accused, right? Three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The buddies of Daniel. And adding salt to the wound, because this kind of blew the king away, adding a little salt to this wound that he has now, because he's thinking, oh no, not them. The Chaldeans reminded the king of how he had appointed them. They just, man, it's like these guys, I don't know if these guys wanted to die that day. Maybe they just really trusted that they'd be okay by making these allegations, but they're just so forward with it. It's just like, they're the guys that you appointed, man. That's like going to your boss because he's got a renegade employee and saying, you're the dummy that hired him. That's what they were doing. They were adding a little insult to injury here, right? It's you that actually appointed these certain Jews over the affairs of the province of Babylon. It's your high-ranking leaders, by the way, the guys you put in place. Now, the Chaldeans wanted Nebuchadnezzar to develop a particular opinion and attitude about these guys, about these three guys. They wanted Nebuchadnezzar to see them in a certain light, not just as as men who didn't bow and worship and, and fulfill the edict. He wanted to see them as ungrateful and treasonous. That's how these guys wanted Nebuchadnezzar. Man, it's the guys that you appointed those high positions, your own leaders, they have turned against you. Why? Because they don't care about your word. They don't care about your things. They're ungrateful. They don't care about their promotions. They take these things for granted. That's all kind of buried in their words here, in their allegation. It was if... As if they were saying to Nebuchadnezzar, you did something really, really cool for these guys. Now look how they treat you. It seems that they were also attempting to call the king's ability to lead into question by tying the king to these guys. They're your appointees. You know, like, what does that say? They're the guys that you put in place. What does that say about your leadership? What does that say about your ability to choose good leaders? What does that say about your discernment? I think that's all kind of threaded through the allegation. The alleged poor behavior of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was a reflection of the king's poor choice in leaders. Look at it like that. And I want to just touch on something that I mentioned last week. I mentioned and asked the question, where was Daniel during this event? Because he's not mentioned in this narrative, right? So my mind just started going like, where's he at? Did he not bow? Where was he at? He had to have been there. He recorded it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, I have three possible explanations. Perhaps Daniel was in a different location at this time. Chapter 2, verse 49 mentions that he remained at the king's court. Uh, Now, you have to understand that chapter 2, those events were two decades before this. I'm not sure that that means that when it says, you know, that he remained in the king's court, that from that moment on, he was like a statue in the king's court for the next 40 years. I can't can't leave. I have to remain in the king's court. I can't can't go to the event. I don't think you're supposed to interpret it that way. I... It's possible that he might have remained back at the king's court. It's possible that he might have been sent on a mission away and out of the kingdom or at some other point. I don't know. Perhaps as one of the highest administrators, Daniel was immune from the requirement to bow down, whereas Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were lower officials who were not immune. That's a possibility. I don't really think so, but who knows? And thirdly, perhaps Daniel also refused to bow down, but the certain Chaldeans who accused the three men were afraid to accuse Daniel because of his high position. That's a possibility. Now, it's scripture we just need to know that doesn't make the answer totally clear, doesn't elucidate that for us. We don't know, but I kind of think that the first one, that maybe he was in a different place, is probably uh, makes the most sense. 
So there's three possible reasons why he is not mentioned there or doesn't seem to be present. At the end of verse 12, we see the actual accusation. It is threefold. First, they what? Pay no attention to you. Uh, They were implying that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had gone completely rogue and paid literally no attention whatsoever to the king. Now, this is a lie, because if they paid no attention to the king, they wouldn't have been at the event, right? They paid no attention to what the king was saying or the mail and letters that he was sending out to his officials. They would have just looked at the invitation and torn it up and threw it away. It's, you, you can't prove that they didn't pay any attention. They did. They came. They certainly paid attention to what the king was saying. If they hadn't been paying attention at the event, they probably would have bowed. They were paying attention. And so what am I telling you? I'm telling you this idea of them paying no attention to the king is a total lie. There's no way that you can be a high official like them for two decades and pay no attention to your boss. I suppose that can happen in some workplaces. I don't see how. Well, the fact is these young men paid close attention to the king and they took their offices very seriously. If they didn't want to be in public office and, and, and serve, then they, you know, Daniel wouldn't have nominated them for it. They wanted to serve the king in some capacity. But most of all, they wanted to serve their God. And yes, you can serve your God while working for a pagan organization, for, you know, working for the federal government. God calls us to, to, to take those kinds of positions, even political positions, and to represent Jesus Christ there. You know, at this point in the narrative, they had served as counselors in the king's administration for two decades, okay? If they were completely rogue and didn't pay attention to what the king was saying all the time, there's no way they would have stayed in that position. They would have either been fired, demoted, or probably killed. Second part of the accusation, they do not serve your gods. This was true. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not serve the astral deities of Babylon. They served the God of Israel, their God, alone. Uh, We would say it like this. They were in Babylon, but not of Babylon. Like how Christians are in the world, but not of the world. Okay, so no. They were not down with serving these astral deities, Bel. Bel Merodach, you know, Marduk, any of them. They were not down with serving any of that, any of that stuff. Those were not their gods. They knew they weren't gods at all. They weren't going to serve idols and these things. So that was true. And third, they do not worship the golden image that you have set up. This was also true. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow and worship the golden image. They refused to do so because they were resolved to worship the God of Israel alone. So if I go over here and bow to this idol, I would be worshiping this idol. And I'm not going to do that because I worship the true living God. The most high God, as Nebuchadnezzar says multiple times throughout this letter. I bow to him and him alone. I'm not going to bow to this statue or any of this stuff. No, I just want to kind of shift here, and I'm going to begin to wrap it up, but it's going to take a little while to do that. I just got some thoughts, because as I was reading this text, and what I, what I do, and I, maybe, I, maybe I've told you this before, but whenever I'm going to preach a text or study a text and write a sermon, I always read the text a lot, you know, beforehand, right? You know, you just keep reading it, you get familiar with it, and things start popping up, you start taking little notes, then you start the process of writing a sermon, and um, one, one thing just kept coming to mind over and over and over. This particular little chunk of Scripture reminds me of how we have earthly and spiritual adversaries. We have earthly, we have physical, and we have invisible spiritual adversaries. Because we see a text where there's some adversary, don't we? There's some enemies of God's people here. Namely, the certain Chaldeans, ultimately the devil, right, working through them. 
So this text reminds me of how we have earthly adversaries. We have spiritual adversaries. Earthly adversaries are, are people who seek to tear us down. Who seek to tear us down through criticism, through ridicule, through persecution. Okay? Oh, we don't really have any enemies, you know, and fleshly enemies. You know, you've heard that said. Well, you know, go tell that to the guys that got their heads cut off by ISIS. No, there, we have fleshly human adversaries who come against, they hate Christ, they hate Christians, and then we have just people that you know, take religion out of it, they just hate other people. We have earthly adversaries. Who in this room has come across an earthly adversary? For whatever reason, Joe Blow over here, anyone here named Joe Blow? Hope not. Just gives you so much trouble and so many problems and so much criticism. You're sitting there going, huh, I don't know what Joe Blow's problem is. Who? Can I see a show of hands? Who has found themselves standing before someone who just hates and is just angry and mad and they want you? They're just sick of you. Maybe it's a coworker who's just belligerent and angry and ticked off at you for whatever reason. Maybe it's, maybe, you know, it's, your spouse. I can't tell you how many counseling sessions I've had with married couples who literally, he's my enemy, she's my enemy. Yeah, God joined you together so you could implode. We've all experienced animosity and anger and criticism and ridicule, and maybe some of us have even because of our faith. Oh, you're a Christian. You're stupid. Christians are stupid. You know, I was really concerned about my oldest son who just started taking some classes over at a JC. And, you know, there's some classes at JC that are notoriously anti-Christian, maybe like English or something like that. And, you know, it's like, how do you, you take English so you can, you know, read a lot and learn to write essays and all that. You go into there. And, and why would you start off your class with a professor saying, first of all, is there any Christians in here? You're morons. What does my faith have to do with English? So I was really concerned and praying for, man, he's probably going to have to, that's going to happen, and I'm going to have to go down there and throw down. No, I wasn't saying that. Uh, it happened in my friend, right? Carl, help me. Um, it happened in my buddy, Carl, like, nope. It happened to my buddy Paul Turner, his son, you know, in the same scenario. He went, and, then, and his professor came at his faith and was just laying into him. And Paul was like, oh, go down there and give him a piece of my mind. He's supposed to be teaching algebra. You know? Enemies. So, earthly adversaries can be people who seek to tear us down through criticism, ridicule, and persecution. And I would also say that disease is an earthly adversary. It's a, an enemy of our bodies, you know. Disease, illness, ravage our earthly bodies and most certainly try to rob us of our joy. Just some quick stats. According to the National Cancer Institute, there are over 100 types of cancer today, 100 types. And and there was a British agency that did some research on it, and they're saying there's more like 200, 200 different types, 100 different types of cancer. According to the American Cancer Society, cancer kills 1,500 people a day in the United States. Cancer is the second highest cause of death in our nation. The first is heart disease. In some sense, those are earthly adversaries. They tear our bodies down. You've got people hammering and blasting you. You've got disease and these sorts of things. We also have spiritual adversaries, namely the devil and the demons. They seek to lure us away, right, through temptation and tear us down spiritually through sin and doubt and all of these sorts of things. The devil's constantly working to undermine and destroy our faith. It gets so bad towards the end that the Antichrist will really seek to devastate and destroy almost to the point where the elect go south. That's going to be really bad. And the devil even goes into heaven to accuse us before our king like the certain Chaldeans did before Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't he? He stands before the throne of God and says, Phil pays no attention to you. Why don't you just go ahead and throw him in the fiery furnace? He does this all the time. The earthly and spiritual adversaries, whether it be people or disease and 
and the spiritual forces of darkness, the devil and the demons, they all basically work together to tear us down and to defeat us. It's no wonder that we, even as Christians, become fearful from time to time, right? Can I get an amen? Maybe it's just not these adversaries, but maybe it's just any kind of fear, financially related fear, or I'm not sure about the future or anything. I mean, we just, there is, look at, look at, look at our nation. You said it yourself. There's never been an election that's a bigger joke. We have no idea what's going to happen. I just know that we have a king on the throne. But beyond that, there's so much uncertainty and, quite frankly, a little trepidation and fear in me because it's like, what's going to happen? Look at the world we live in. There are a zillion reasons for us to live in and walk in fear. What will happen with my children? Fear. And I'm going to read some verses that that I, I hope and pray will subdue our fears and build us up so that we can press on with hearts that are full of joy and faith. These are fearful times, aren't they? Just listen to these scriptures. If you want to try to turn there and read along, that's fine. But just listen. And if you need the notes because you want to go back and look at them, just ask me and I'll print the message and give it to you. I just want the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to minister to you Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. The Israelites are about to enter into the promised land. You talk about enemies. They were very fearful of those that they were going to come across. What does God say to them here? Be strong and courageous. How can they be strong and courageous? Because he goes with them. It's the presence of God and his power and his might and his love and his grace and his very presence that emboldens us to be courageous, to be strong. If you suffer from fear quite regularly, maybe you have forgotten who is with you. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though, we know it, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This valley that David's writing about was a treacherous valley filled with robbers and wild beasts. It was a deadly place where people were killed all the time. He says, even though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, when I walk through that particular valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The idea here is that God is a protector. He comes and he's armed Get back, lion. Get back, Robert. Again, it's the presence of the Lord here where the protection is. Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. He's not on the side of the Philistines. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You got God on your side and you're worried about that accuser? You're worried about that shemp you work with who's ticked off because you got the promotion? You're worried about ISIS? You're worried about the federal government? You're worried about the IRS? You're worried about anything? You're worried about cancer? You're worried about any of these things? The Lord is on my side. Ain't nobody stronger than Him. Psalm 27, verse 1. And these things have to do with, those were physical protection. These have to do with spiritual protection. The Lord, Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The salvation of the Lord is impenetrable. It is immutable. Nothing will take the light of Christ from you. Isaiah 43.1 But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, are we not Israelis in a sense? Have we not been grafted in to the Jewish people in a sense by faith? Are we not the seed of Abraham by faith? We're all in a sense Jewish. So the certain Chaldeans hate us as well. He says, who formed you, O Israel, right? We have been grafted in. We are part of that in a sense, at least spiritually. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I bought you out of slavery. You belong to me. I have called you by my name, and you are mine. Wow. Isaiah 54, verse 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. The idea here is that people, the accusers come and they attack us for our faith and our belief and they try to reap judgment upon us, but our tongues are the ones that shall succeed when we testify to Jesus and what he's done for us. He says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, Christians, believers, those who have been grafted in, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. If you've been vindicated by God himself through Jesus Christ... Who can bring any sort of allegation against you? Who can call into question your faith and your salvation? Who can do that? No one. So the Word of God deals with physical enemies. It deals with spiritual enemies. Now I want you to listen to these sections from Romans 8. This is where we begin to wrap it up. In fact, your assignment for this week is to go and to read all of Romans 8 because it is one of the greatest, most powerful, fear-destroying chapters in all of Scripture. It is insane. If you read that and walk out like a wet, frightened chihuahua, you missed it. You ought to walk out in the strength of the Lord. Listen to this. I'll start at 8.15. Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Let me read that again. Speaking to believers. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, and that spirit's capitalized, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Did you catch what Paul wrote here? The spirit of slavery has to do with being in bondage to fear. They go together. The spirit that enslaves us, that shackles us with the bonds of fear has been replaced by the Holy Spirit whose presence guarantees our heavenly adoption as sons and daughters. Because of the Holy Spirit, we are no longer slaves to fear. Because of the Holy Spirit, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Now Paul goes on to describe the immutability, the unchangeableness of God's love and plan for his children. The certainty of this adoption. He goes on in the rest of the chapter to describe it. 8:28 through 31. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You're asking yourself, why is this happening to me? Why is this terrible thing happening? Why am I sick? Why do I constantly struggle with fibromyalgia? Why am I dealing with these? Why do I have these enemies at, at work? Why do I have these problems? Why am I under spiritual attack? It's for your good. He goes on to say, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's laying out the whole plan for adoption here in eternity past. 
Conformed to the image of his son. That's the purpose of salvation, to be made like Jesus, right? It's not just so you can go pluck a harp on a cloud. That's stupid. It's so that you can be made like Jesus, conformed to the image, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, talking about Jesus and the resurrection, and those whom he predestined. It's not just that he chose us in eternity past. He also called us. And that's, that's what happened when, when the Holy Spirit took the gospel and woke you up to it when you were sitting there in death. Oh, I understand this now. There it is. There's the calling. He calls you out of darkness, out of death, into salvation, into life, into the light. And not only did he do that, he didn't just predestine or call. He also justified, made us right with God, gave us a righteous standing with God through the earned righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not only does he justify us and make us right with God, because let me tell you, being made made right with God is the greatest fear-destroying news ever. Because if you are right with God, there's nothing else to be afraid of. You know the certainty of what's going to happen to you. When you breathe your last, you are in the presence of Jesus Christ. One day you'll receive a glorified, resurrected body. It's amazing. When you're made right with God, everything's cool. Not only are we justified, but we will be glorified. And then he says this. Listen to this. What shall we say? Okay, here's what God has done for you, believer. What shall we say to these things? How should we respond? If God is for us, who can be against us? (laughs) I'm just shaking. I'm not done. I want to hit you with some more fear-destroying scripture. Romans 8, 37 through 39. 8, 37 through 39. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, Jesus. And he says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, okay, the spiritual powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have nothing. 